0: All right again, just welcome everybody. thank you for coming and uh we're we're taking a break from nehemiah and we're we're taking a little short three week journey into some issues of prophecy. Um, let me start by saying this in all my life, I never thought I'd see the United States of America fall from being a number one superpower, highly respected nation in all the world, but in these last few years we've actually become somewhat of a laughing stock to the world. I don't know if you know that or not. Literally, foreign news media mock what goes on in this country these days. They mock the foolishness that we portray. And if you're older like I am, if you've been around long enough to have enjoyed the history that the United States has earned, uh, you, you may ask questions like, well, what will come of America? How's the world going to function without us as the global police of truth and justice and democracy? Well, the answer to that question is it doesn't even matter. It doesn't matter at all. In the context of prophecy specifically, it doesn't matter at all. Because if you want to know how close are we to the end, and that's our, that's our little mini-series, how close are we to the end... Well, let me tell you, we we take some time to look at the things. What is it that we should be looking for? Well, let me tell you what you should not look towards. Don't look to the United States. If you want to know how close we are, it doesn't matter what's going on in the United States. The place you need to look and the title of today's message is to look to Israel. You need to look to Israel, and, and that's no surprise to you who are Bible students. You should understand that for sure. Today we're going to look at some things that may be a new view of some things that you may or may not have considered before. But when we do that, when we look to Israel, and with the interest of understanding what is going on in the world, even, even a casual reading of the Bible, right, makes it clear that there is that one special nation that gets all the attention. Israel is that nation. They get all the biblical narrative attention. I want to start by drawing your attention to Proverbs chapter 23, verses 10 and 11, where it says this Remove not the old landmark and enter not into the fields of the fatherless, for their Redeemer is mighty. He shall plead their cause with thee. That landmark is Israel. There's only ever been one land that God has marked. And made clear what he wanted to do with that land. He promised it to Abraham and he promised it to Abraham's seed that they would possess it. And that's because the reference to the landmark also has a reference to a group of people that will inhabit that land. Their redeemer. God is the redeemer of Israel. And in that land, God intended to do some things. We'll speak metaphorically, but God intended to plant a tree, actually several trees, depending on how you want to look at it with the metaphors that are used. For example, in Hosea chapter 9 and verse number 10, the prophet says this, I found Israel like, very important comparative word, grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first ripe in the fig tree at her first time. So God compares Israel to a vine, and God compares Israel to a fig tree. Things we've looked at in the past. Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 13, refers to a similar way. I will surely consume them, saith the Lord. There shall be no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. And the leaf shall fade, and the things that I have given them shall pass away from them. The context of Jeremiah's discourse is clearly God's judgment, on the nation of Israel. They are a fruitless fig tree, and even the leaf will fade. So, if you want to know what God Himself, let's say the Lord Jesus Christ, has to say about Israel, Bible students should know that the book of the Bible you're going to want to go to is the book of Matthew, because Matthew is the Jewish gospel. It's the gospel that presents Jesus Christ. As the King of the Jews, so in Matthew 21, we're not surprised to read in verse 19, when he Jesus saw a fig tree in the way, he came to it, and found nothing thereon but leaves only, and said unto it, Let no fruit grow on thee henceforth henceforward forever, and presently the fig tree withered away. Now that was a legitimate miracle that Jesus actually performed in the withering away of a fig tree that happened to be fruitless, but Jesus was trying to teach the disciples something at that time. Israel, the fig tree, had a purpose. And they needed to do what they were created to do. And what they were created to do, like that tree, was to produce proper fruit. That's what they needed to do. And if they weren't going to do that, then God would essentially take that life away from that tree and I think you know the story Israel rejected God so God rejected Israel right back and after Jesus' crucifixion and after the final Jewish rejection of of God in Acts chapter seven well Israel was set aside and in 70 AD Jerusalem was destroyed and Israel was scattered among the nations and they were known as a nation no more But you need to understand that God has not permanently cast away Israel, as many people want to think. He's going to bring her back, and he's going to bring her back in the time that we refer to as the Great Tribulation. That is the context of Matthew chapter 24, something we glanced at last week. So it starts off in verse number 3. As he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us when shall these things be and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world. This sets the context. The disciples were essentially asking, how close are we? How close are we? And then the various things throughout Matthew 24 that you can read and study and many of you have eventually leads us to this parable of a fig tree in verse number 32 where Jesus goes on and says, now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, you know that summer is nigh. So likewise ye, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. And so Israel as a whole is apostate during the time of the church age. They're actually referred to as the enemies of the gospel in Romans chapter 11 and verse 28 as concerning the gospel they the context if you check Romans 11 is Israel are enemies for your sakes but as touching the election they're beloved for the father's sake so so the Lord through the apostle Paul communicates to the church saying you need to understand that now for now they're the enemies of the gospel they're rejecting Jesus Christ and the message of the good news of the gospel but Don't get too heady, don't get too high-minded because they're still beloved for the Father's sakes. And and we, as saved Gentiles, specifically saved Gentiles, need to be careful to not despise Israel. If you back up a few verses in Romans chapter 11, he, he makes that very clear. We'll pick it up in verse 18. Boast not against the branches, but if thou boast, thou bearest not the root but the root thee. Thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off, that I might be graft in. Well, because of unbelief, they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear, for if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest he also spare not thee. Behold therefore the goodness and severity of God on them which fell, severity, but toward thee, praise the Lord, Goodness, if thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. You see, we need to never forget. we need to always remember that we have what we have because of the nation of Israel. It's, it's through Israel that we get our savior. It's through Israel that we get our salvation. John chapter four says that salvation is of the Jews. It's through Israel that we get our scriptures because Romans chapter three says that unto them were given the oracles of God. It's because of Israel that we get the blessings that we get, Romans chapter nine. You can look at that yourself in just the very beginning verses of that chapter. Unto Israel was given the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the law and the service of God and the promises and ultimately Jesus Christ. We have what we have. We owe them a debt of gratitude. So if we want to better understand what God is doing in the world even today, well, we need to look to Israel because Israel is the apple of God's eye. I'm going to read for us, and this will be our text today, launching out of Psalms chapter 80. If you haven't opened your Bibles there, I invite you to do that. The verses will come up on the screen as always. We're going to jump in in verse number 8 of Psalms 80 and go down through verse 15. Psalms 80, verse number 8. Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt. Thou hast cast out the heathen and planted it. Thou preparest room before it and didst cause it to take deep root, and it filled the land the hills were covered with the shadow of it and the boughs thereof were like the goodly cedars. She sent out her boughs unto the sea and her branches unto the river. Why hast thou then broken down her hedges so that all they which pass by the way do pluck her? The boar out of the wood doth waste it and the wild beast of the field doth devour it. Return, we beseech thee, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and behold and visit this vine and the vineyard which thy right hand hath planted and the branch that thou madest strong for thyself. We're going to look at some of the details of this. Let's pray and ask God to open our hearts and minds to understand what he has for us. Lord Jesus, as we get into this, I do pray, God, that you would... Take your word and that your spirit would be our teacher, that that he would open our hearts and our minds of understanding, that we would see things that we maybe haven't ever seen before, that we would understand by virtue of the fact that your word is very pure. It's very sure. It's perfect and it's absolutely right. And it's holy and it's spiritual and it's eternal. And as we glean what we see from your word. May we then have eyes to see what's going on around us and give us some indication of what your disciples asked you some 2,000 years ago. What are the signs? When will it be? How close are we? Because it does appear to us that this world is going crazy and how do we put the pieces together? How can we know what's ahead of us? I pray, Lord, you'd help us to see that today. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, the first thing I want us to look at, I'm calling this point number one in your outline, God's particular development of one nation. Continuing on this theme of Israel and the development of that nation, I I picked up this psalm, which if you go back into the full context of the psalm, ultimately has a doctrinal application into the tribulation, but the author goes back and recounts some of Israel's history, and that's where I wanted to grab it in verse number eight, where it began with, thou hast brought a vine Out of Egypt, thou hast cast cast out the heathen and planted that vine in that land. God has clearly shown a particular interest in one specific nation. And when they came out of Egypt, they came out of Egypt with great miracles. You know the story with Moses and all the plagues, the river turned to blood and the frogs and the lice and the flies, and the death of the cattle, and the darkness over the land, and the boils, and ultimately that death of the firstborn. All those miracles were required to ultimately get his people out from being enslaved in Egypt. But really, you have to go farther back than that. If you wanna understand the story of Israel, you have to go all the way back to the book of Genesis and the story of Abraham. The story starts with Abraham when God called Abraham to leave his home and to head out, to start to travel, to go. Where was he supposed to go? In Genesis 12, well, God doesn't say. He says, just go. Go to the land that I'll show you. When you get there, I'll let you know. God didn't say. So what does Abram do? Abram goes out by faith. And he goes out to see this land and the time when he is doing this is about 1900 years before the coming of Jesus Christ. But the thing you need to understand about Abram as he became Abraham is that he actually never inherited that land. All he did was wander through it for a time. But the thing is, is that God still, like I mentioned with the landmark, he has marked that particular land. In your notes I put this, God's interest concerns a people through Abraham and a land. You see, the people are the people that are going to come through the seed of Abraham, and that seed is going to follow the line of Isaac, not Ishmael, and then the line of Jacob, not Esau, But all through the book of Genesis and all through the stories of these men that we call the patriarchs, they're not a nation. They're just a nomadic tribal people. Jacob is the one whose name is ultimately changed to Israel when he wrestles with the Lord and his 12 sons ultimately become the heads of 12 tribes in Israel. I mean, they're a nomadic tribal people. None of them ever inherited the land. In fact, the book of Genesis ends with the 12 tribes in bondage to Pharaoh in Egypt. And you keep reading then into the next book, the book of Exodus, and it's not until Exodus chapter 19, notice starting in verse 4 You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians and how I bare you on eagle's wings and brought you unto myself. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and, and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. Notice verse 6. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a an holy nation. And God called them out to be a nation after those ten plagues. And as they were about to leave Egypt, then and only then do they actually begin to become A nation. God calls them out as a nation, not under Abraham, but under Moses. And that's actually very important because Israel is called to be a great nation. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse number 7 says this, For what nation is there so great who hath God so nigh unto them as the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon him for? And what nation is there so great that hath statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law which I set before you this day? Israel is a great nation, not because they're so great. They're actually the exact opposite of great, which is why God chose them. They're a great nation because they have a great God. And they're a great nation because they have the word of God. That's why they're a great nation, because God chose them to be that. And so the nation of Israel began with Moses, and Moses brought them out of Egypt, and that's the people, and he brought them into a land. And so if we go back to Psalm chapter 80, where we left off, and we pick it up in verse number nine, it says, thou preparest room before it, this vine that he speaks of, and didst cause it to take deep root, and it filled the land. It filled the land. The hills were covered with the shadow of it, and the boughs thereof were like unto goodly cedars. So he calls this people out, and he calls them unto this particular land, and he caused them to take root down in that land. He's planting his vine in that land. Well, it says that he's going to cast out the heathen to do that in verse number 8. When he brought them out of Egypt to bring them into a land, he's going to cast out the heathen. How exactly did he cast out the heathen? Well, he cast out the heathen through Joshua. You know the story. Joshua is the military general that was alongside Moses throughout the time in the wilderness, and Moses was not allowed to enter the Promised Land. Joshua brings them in to the Promised Land, and when he brings them into the Promised Land for this military campaign, it is against all odds. Their human ability to be able to drive out those Canaanites and the inhabitants of that land was more than human reason could consider. In fact, if it weren't for God, this is important, doing significant miracles to help Joshua and Israel, they never would have driven out the inhabitants of that land, those heathen. Everybody knows the story of Jericho and the walled city of Jericho those impenetrable walls. And what was the great military strategy that Joshua used? Well, God told him what to do. You march around the city six days. On the seventh day, you march around the city seven times and then blow trumpets and shout. And it worked. Well, that's the Lord. The Lord did that, right? When he was up against five different kings, which means five different kingdoms, of the Amorites in chapter number 10, it says that God cast down from heaven great stones like hailstones upon the enemy. Joshua couldn't do that. Uh, chapter 10 is the chapter that says that God caused the sun to stand still for the expanse of an entire day so that the armies of Israel would have enough time to whip those guys. And by the time Joshua was done fighting, and that's in chapter number 12, it lists 31 different kings of that land that he drove out. God did that. God prepared that land for the Jews. And as a result, Israel's always had an amazing influence over the whole world from that one little location that one small area go back to psalm chapter 80 verses 11 to 13 she sent out her boughs under the sea and her branches under the river why hast thou then broken down her hedges so that all they which pass by the way do pluck her the boar out of the wood doth waste it and the wild beast of the field doth devour it you see for many many years israel did just that and they've always had Amazing influence, even through this current time in history, through art and science and literature and culture and so many things that God has used the Jews to influence throughout the whole world. Whereas our Gentile forefathers, well, historically, our forefathers, they're just a bunch of heathen. They're just a bunch of idol worshiping heathen. They're in total darkness. Remember, our ancestors, our ancestors are the ones who cut down trees out of the forest to deck it with silver and gold. Our ancestors are the ones that made a queen to heaven. Our ancestors are the ones who built idols of silver and of brass and of wood. In fact, our ancestors would make idols to anything, everything that you can imagine, except a sheep. And so you read about them making idols to moles and bats and rats and all kind of crazy things. That's where we come from. That's our spiritual heritage. You need to understand that. And God had to run those heathen out of that land so that he could protect his people from that wickedness. That's why he did it. And do you know how he protected them? He protected them by giving them his words. He gave them divine instruction. Israel is to be a place of light. And Gentiles just hate to admit it. They just hate to admit it. So while they're in their land, Israel was constantly bombarded by darkness. And if the Lord didn't protect those people, they would have ended up in darkness just like the heathen all around him and that's why the Lord was so strict with the Jews to not intermarry with people of other uh, other peoples other Gentile heathen peoples because he knew that their heathen practices would then infiltrate into the society of the Jews and they were to be special they were to be different they would turn their hearts to their pagan gods But again, if you're familiar with the narrative through the scriptures, eventually, over time, the darkness did creep in. But remember, God wasn't done with Israel just yet. So that brings us to our next point, and that's point number two in your outline, God's historical deliverance of one nation. Now we get to the point where we're into the book of Judges in the history of Israel. And the book of Judges describes what life is like when there is no light, when there is no authority. The book ends with this famous verse, Judges 21-25. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? What in the world are we seeing every day out in society? There's no authority for anything, for anybody, for any issue If it's right for me, that's right enough. Everybody did that which is right in his own eyes. We're kind of living like the days of Judges, aren't we? And the book of Judges, if you're to study it, shows a constant downward cycle. And that cycle is sin, which leads to bondage, which leads to Israel crying out. And he brings deliverance using Judges to do that. God knew how stiff necked these people were. And after all that God did for them, after all those miracles in the wilderness for all those years, and after driving out the heathen and giving them their land to inherit, they forgot God. That's what we read in Judges chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. It says, And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and forget the Lord their God. How is that even possible? And served Balaam and the groves. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan-Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served Cushan-Rishathaim eight years. And this is the cycle you see through Judges. They they turn to these idols, and they're in bondage to some pagan nation for a period of time until there comes a time of deliverance because it grieved God to see his people in this state so he sent judges judges to deliver Israel from bondage to the heathen and to redirect them back to the Lord and the first judge that appears in the book of Judges is a man by the name of Othniel and you'll read about him in Judges 3 verses 9 through 11 coming right off the heel of the verses I just read to you And when you read about Othniel, what you see is that God's Spirit came on him, and he judged Israel, and he delivered them, right? It says, and as a result, Israel had rest for 40 years. You see, the way that God deals with Israel is similar to the way that God deals with us. He calls out specific men to protect his people. And how are they supposed to do it? Well, they're supposed to do it by giving them God's Word. So that they don't go into darkness. And it works. It works for a while anyway. Until they begin to do evil again. And the cycle repeats itself. Which is what happened with Israel. And then they find themselves in service to a king by the name of Eglon. He's the king of Moab. And it says that they served Eglon and Moab 18 years. Until God raised up another deliverer. And his name was Ehud. Now Ehud, when you read his story, he he was an assassin. Ehud is the guy who carries out what we might call a preemptive strike. He goes in and he requests audience with Eglon, the king of Moab, and he said he was going to bring him a gift, and the king said, okay, he can come in. He gets past the guards, and they're in the private room. there in the parlor of the king, and and when he, has, when he gets in the private audience of the king, he pulls a dagger out that's strapped to his thigh, and he guts him. And the story's really gross, and y'all just should go and read it for yourself. But <laughs> the knife goes in so far, he can't pull it back out again. It's, 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 it's awesome. Okay, but <laughs> it's a gross story. But then he escapes out the back door. As a result of that assassination, well... The Israelites rallied and they slew 10,000 Moabites. God gave a great deliverance. The cycle just continues. The next judge that we find is, is a woman. Her name is Deborah. And Deborah was the only female judge of all of Israel. And it's an amazing story, really. Um, at this point, they're supposed to fight the general whose name is Sisera. He was, he was wicked. He was evil. He oppressed Israel for 20 years. And so Deborah calls for a guy by the name of Barak. And Barak was supposed to come and she calls him to go and to fight against Sisera. And Barak, you know, the the tough guy that he is, he's like, well, I'll only go if you go with me. Good dude. And, And so Deborah's like, all right, I'll go with you. But know this, the honor that God was gonna give you, he's gonna give it to a woman. And at the end of the day, Uh, Sisera ends up being murdered by a woman, and and at the end of the day, Deborah is the one who gets the praise. The next one you read about in the book of Judges is Gideon, and everybody's familiar with Gideon and his army of 300 men and all that sort of thing. You find that in chapters 6 to 8. and Most commentators, if you read about this, would refer to Gideon as the next judge because the way God delivered him with whittling down that army of 32,000 troops, down to only 300 and they're fighting against the Midianites. But you need to understand something and pay attention to the words of the Bible when you study it because the Bible's very clear. The Bible never calls Gideon a judge. Neither does it call his son Abimelech a judge. In fact, in fact, Israel went to Gideon after the Lord delivered him through that attempt, right? And, and they said this, notice in Judges chapter 8, verse 22. Then men of Israel said unto Gideon, Rule thou over us, both thou and thy son, and thy son's son also, for thou hast delivered us from the hand of Midian. Notice verse 23. And Gideon said unto them, I will not rule over you, neither shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. So officially and technically, Gideon is actually not a judge in Israel. The next judge that you'll find is a guy by the name of Tola. He's in chapter number 10. There's really not much said about Tola. We don't know a lot about him. It says that he judged Israel for 23 years. The next guy is a guy named Jair. And Jair judged Israel for 22 years. And all it really says about Jair is in verse number 4 of chapter 10 where it says this. And he had 30 sons that rode on 30 ass colts, And they had 30 cities which are called uh, Havoth Jair unto this day which are in the land of Gilead. But human nature never changes. And after Jair, the Jews went back to their evil ways. If you keep reading in chapter 10, you'd see that. And they end up serving the Philistines and the Ammonites for another 18 years. The next judge that's called out is a guy by the name of Jephthah. Jephthah is from chapter 11 into the beginning of chapter 12. And, and Jephthah was a vain man. Jephthah is a, is a man whose mother was a harlot, uh, he's not super spiritual. Uh, but he's a warrior, and the Bible says specifically in chapter 12 and verse number 7 that Jephthah judged Israel for six years. The next guy after him is a judge by the name of Ibzan, and Ibzan, it says in verse 9 of chapter 12, he had 30 sons and 30 daughters whom he sent abroad and took in 30 daughters from abroad for his sons. Didn't we hear that's not what they're supposed to do, right? You're not supposed to go abroad and find the daughters for your sons. That was strictly forbidden, but he did that, and it says that he judged Israel seven years. There's not much said about him, but let me just tell you something. When there's just a little bit said about somebody, you ought to pay attention to what is said because it could be very significant. The one little thing God wanted you to know, heaven and earth will pass away, my words will never pass away, could be specifically important. That guy brought in foreign women to marry his sons, and you need to understand why. Why did people do that? People generally did that sort of thing to form political alliances. That's why they did it. The next judge is a guy named Elon, and uh, chapter number 12, verses 11 and 12, not much about him. He judged Israel 10 years. The next guy is Abdon, Uh, verse chapter number 12 verse 14 says he had 40 sons and 30 nephews that rode on three score and 10 ass colts and he judged Israel eight years the next one you may be more familiar with named Samson Samson chapter 13 14 15 16 uh, it says in verse 20 of chapter 15 he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years so Samson judged for 20 years but what's interesting about Samson is is that he actually never fully delivered Israel from the Philistines, did he? By the time he dies, in fact, it refers to in that very verse, he judged Israel, the Bible calls it, in the days of the Philistines. The Philistines still had power over Israel, even though Samson was winning some battles. And so Samson is the last judge listed in the book of Judges. There's, there, he's, but he's not the last judge over Israel. He's the, it's the last one listed in the Book of Judges. Because if you continue reading in your faithful Bible reading, you get to the Book of First Samuel, right? And in First Samuel chapter number four and verse number eighteen, we see that Eli, who we know to be a priest, is not just a priest. Eli is also a judge. It says in chapter four and verse eighteen that he judged Israel for forty years. And then the last judge is Samuel himself, 1 Samuel 7 and verse 15. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. So there you have it. You have it in your notes. You have all 13 judges in the Bible. You have 13 different people that served as judges over Israel. And and the thing you should know about Samuel I mean, I'm sure there were other good men, but Samuel specifically was a good man. And he tried very hard to get Israel to do what was right. But Israel didn't want to do what was right. And so in 1 Samuel 8 and verses 4 and 5, notice it says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel and to Ramah and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. And that was a huge mistake because they wanted to be like all the other nations when God told them that they were to be a peculiar people. They were to be a holy nation. They were to be a nation of priests. They were to be different and distinct from all the other nations. And and so all of the customs and all of the laws about how they were supposed to dress And how they were supposed to cut their hair and the way that they were to to wash and and all the various things that they were supposed to do was to keep them distinct and different from all the other nations. And what did Israel want only to be like all the other nations? And so they insisted, give us a king. And Samuel's like, I don't want to give you a king. God's supposed to be your king. Give us a king. And so the king that they get is Saul. Saul. And continuing to read in chapter number 8 and verses 11 through 18, what we find is that Samuel warns the people about the kind of a king that they're going to get. You want a king? Let me tell you what you're going to end up with if you keep insisting on this end. He's going to end up being a socialist, communist-type dictator. In fact, you could say, if you were to read those verses, and you can do that on your own, you could say that Saul's motto is, of his government might be something like this you'll own nothing and you'll be happy whereas Samuel tells them listen if you go for this guy you'll be sorry you'll be sorry verse 19 first Samuel 8 nevertheless the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said nay but we will have a king over us That we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us, notice, and fight our battles. You see, Israel said, what's going to happen if other nations come against us and they bring their armies? We need to have a king who has an army that can protect us. All we have is God. And God said, go ahead and listen to him. Give him a king. They haven't rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me. All of my protection, all of my armies, all of my ways of defeating their enemies are not satisfactory for them. So they were complaining about it. And God said, okay, give them what they want. And Saul led them, and he was a horrible king, and he did terrible things until ultimately he was removed, and they got David. David. And David is the man after God's own heart. And David is a type and a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ often referred to as the son of David. Now that's a quick history of God's deliverance of Israel. And I want us to fast forward a little bit into our last point of study and I'm calling this God's modern deliverance of one nation. God's historical deliverance, okay, but God's modern deliverance of one nation. So now we fast forward a little bit, right? When Jesus Christ shows up, what did Israel conclude? We saw this last week. We have no king but Caesar. Crucify him. And Israel goes down again. And like I said in the introduction, at 70 AD. We're back to where we started. Israel's no nation at all. They're just a certain ethnic group of people scattered among the nations. And history repeats itself. Yet, still, God hasn't cast away his people. He's just set them aside for a while. And for that while that we know is the church age, he's offering his blessings to a bunch of Gentile dogs like us. Because now he's not dealing with a land. And now he's not dealing with a certain ethnic people. The good news for you, Gentile, he doesn't care what you've done. He doesn't care about your heritage. He doesn't care about your bloodline. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you have royal blood. But like we saw in Romans 11, God hasn't forgotten about Israel. He promised that they will come back. Romans 11, verse 23. And they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if thou wert cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, referring to the Gentile heritage, and were grafted in contrary to nature, into a good olive tree, the spiritual blessings of Israel, how much more shall these, which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant... Of this mystery. So, if there's one thing you need to not be ignorant of, he's telling you this is it right here, verse 25. Because people who choose to be willingly ignorant of this mystery, it says they're wise in their own conceits. And here's the mystery that blindness has happened to Israel, but it's only partial. Blindness in part has happened to Israel until a certain time frame. And that's marked by the fullness of the Gentiles until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And then all Israel shall be saved as it is written. There shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. This is written in the time of the church. So what have we seen in the last hundred years or so in secular history? What we're seeing is God is starting to resurrect Israel again. And he's preparing his land and he's preparing his people for great things. Now this last little part that I'm going to share with you, I want to just let you know that I want to give credit to Pastor Brian Donovan down in Florida for this information. I I didn't see this before and I heard him talk about it and I thought it was awesome and I thought you should know about it. But the beginning of the rebirth of the nation of Israel began with a guy by the name of Theodore Herzl. And Theodore Herzl lived at the very end of the 19th century. And he was a Russian Jew. And he was a visionary. And and he wanted a land for his people. He wanted Israel to become a nation again and to be able to go back to their homeland. In fact, he tried to, to lobby and to see if he could figure out how to get that land that God had promised Abraham And all the nations were fighting against it, so much so that they were offering him land in Africa. But God said, no, my people aren't going back to Africa. They're going back to the land I prepared for them. And so Herzl worked, and he did all he could. He was at a particular meeting of nations, and it is a congress that was in Basel, and it was in 1897. And he's quoted as saying this statement. Were I to sum up the Basel Congress in a word, which I shall guard against pronouncing publicly, it would be this. At Basel, I founded the Jewish state, 1897. And if I said this out loud today, I would be answered by universal laughter, perhaps in five years, certainly in 50, everyone will know it. Well, that guy had something, didn't he? He said 50 years from now, 1897, everybody's going to know that there's a Jewish state. So he's kind of like Abraham, who lived 1,900 years before Jesus Christ. Do you know that in Israel's Declaration of Independence, Theodore Herzl is referred to as the spiritual father of the Jewish state? Like Abraham he personally never saw that vision realized. But Israel did become a nation on May 14th, 1948. Oh yeah, 51 years since Herzl's statement. And when they did, they began to be governed by prime ministers. Now, a prime minister is like a judge. He's not a king. He rules over the nation. He's ultimately responsible for delivering Israel from her enemies. And the first judge, I didn't make a big deal about it on the front end, although you saw it in your notes, the first judge over Israel was actually Moses. That's what it says in Exodus chapter 18 and verse 13. It came to pass on the morrow that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood by Moses from morning until the evening. You see Moses is the one who is responsible for the formation of the nation. So when we get to the modern nation of Israel, as they were established in May of 1948, the very first prime minister they had was a guy by the name of David Ben-Gurion. And David Ben-Gurion loved his people, and, and he worked to get the Jews out of Europe. And when he was doing this, he had a guy that worked with him who was a soldier, and that soldier's name was Moshe Dayan. Now, Ben-Gurion ruled Israel from 1948 to 1954, and then again, 55 to 63, but Diane was the guy who was the soldier. He wasn't a judge. He's kind of like Joshua, who went with Moses and did all the fighting, but wasn't a judge himself. Because when Israel was declared a nation on May 14th, 1948, do you know what happened on May 15th? 1948 they said we're a nation again and 30 million Arabs surrounding Israel said oh no you're not and they all rallied in what's referred to as the 1948 Arab-Israeli war and they came at Israel from the north and from the east and from the south and from the southwest and they were pouring people into Israel Israel didn't have 2,500 men to put together in an army at that time But you go and read about the miracles that God did to protect Israel to win that war against millions that came up against him at that time. Tanks came in from Egypt and from Lebanon and Israel. They had teenage boys and farmers that held them off. Those guys would get Molotov cocktails and climb up on the tanks and throw them inside. And those guys, those Arabs didn't know what hit them. What they didn't realize is that they weren't just fighting against Israel. They were fighting against God. And they also didn't realize that they were fighting a bunch of Jews that just went through the Holocaust. And they were not going to move again. But Israel couldn't have done it if God didn't help them. Just like Joshua couldn't have done it with 31 kings if God didn't help him. The next prime minister is called Moshe Sharett, 1954 to 1955. And he was a friend of Ben-Gurion. He was a moderate, but he refused to retaliate against his enemies. He's the guy who founded the city of Tel Aviv. The next guy is a guy named Levi Eshkol, 1963 to 1969. He was a fighter. Eshkol was a fighter. He's like Ehud, right? He was the guy who was in charge of Israel during the 1967 Six Days War where Israel, and they defeat Egypt and Syria and Lebanon, and they regain Jerusalem at that time. The next prime minister was a woman. Her name was Golda Meir. She was the only female prime minister in the history of Israel. She just happens to be number four, like Deborah was number four. And she was tough. You read the story of Golda Meir facing off in debates with um, Pope Paul VI, was accusing her, oh, you're, you're a religious people. Why are you so violent? And she told that guy where to get off. The next prime minister, number five, Yitzhak Rabin, 1974 to 1977, reelected again, 92 to 95. Rabin is the first prime minister that was actually born in the land of Israel. He would match Tola. We don't really know much about Tola, but the history of the chronology could have been that the prime ministers before Tola were certainly imported, right? Because they had traveled to get there. But Tola maybe we don't know that though. It's, it's speculation. Rabin had a hardline political platform against the Arabs and the Palestinians, but ultimately had one big mistake. He he signed the Oslo Accords, which ended up officially giving up the West Bank, Jericho, Gaza, and helped to create the Palestinian Authority. The next prime minister named Menachem Begin, 1977 and 1983, he led an attack on Lebanon. And he's known for the guy who set up a lot of those villages and settlements in the north of Israel. He lines up with Jair. Remember, Jair only had a sentence about him. He's the guy who had 30 cities. It's interesting. You can't beat that Bible. The thing we know about that judge is the thing, one of the things we know about Begin. Prime Minister number seven, Yitzhak Shamir, 1983 to 1984, again takes power 86 to 92. Shamir opposed Camp David. You know, Camp David is that camp in America where we try and have the Arabs and and the Jews get together and negotiate peace. And typically it's land for peace. That's the deal always on the table, right? Number eight, Shimon Peres, 1984 to 1986, 1995 to 1996. Perez is known for his conciliatory relationship with Arafat. Perez was a foreign minister under Rabin during the Oslo Accords. And he helped the PLO get their own self-rule. Perez lost his election for prime minister five times. And in his career, he lost ten different elections to different offices. But he, he seemed to not have a problem creating political alliances with the Palestinians and the Arabs around him, kind of like Ibzan, who brought foreign wives in for his sons. Number nine, Benjamin Netanyahu, 1996 to 1999, and then more recently, 2009 to 2021. He's educated at MIT. He's a hardline nationalist. Netanyahu refused to deal with terrorists Whenever the USA tried to pressure him to give in to Palestine and give up land for peace and all that sort of thing, he wouldn't give in. And he would make statements like this. I can remember it. He would say, God will protect Israel even if America won't. Number 10, Ehud Barak, 1999 to 2001. He was educated at Stanford. He made concessions to Arafat. His mentor was Rabin. This guy gave up more than anyone else to Arafat with the hopes of creating peace. But Arafat kept refusing the offers because he already had plans that he was going to totally destroy the Israeli state. Number 11, Ariel Sharon, 2001 to 2006. Sharon was a lone voice against Rabin's caving into Arafat and against the Oslo Accords. Uh, Sharon was a soldier, he was a fighter. Sharon fought in the 48 War, the 56 Sinai Peninsula Campaign, in the 67 Six-Day War, in the 73 Yom Kippur War. He was in 1982, he was the defense minister, and led the war against Lebanon, where the PLO was defeated and Arafat had to go into hiding. He gained U.S. support after 9-11 in 2001 because the Americans finally realized who the Arabs were and what they were dealing with. So he gained a bunch of U.S. support after 2001 when our government finally realized who they were dealing with. But by December of 2003, Sharon did not about-face and ends up giving up a lot of stuff to the Arabs. And at the Council of Condoleezza Rice, the U.S. Secretary of State under Bush, he gave up Gaza on August 15, 2005. If you were paying attention back in 2005, you'll know that About a day after Rice counseled Sharon to give up Gaza, Hurricane Katrina was gaining ground in the Gulf of Mexico heading due west for the Yucatan Peninsula, or the inside of that, actually the eastern coast of Mexico. And right after that deal was struck, Hurricane Katrina, you you go back and look it up, within days, took a hard right turn and came straight up the coast into New Orleans. And within a week, all the destruction of Hurricane Katrina happened after this deal was cut. 2006, Sharon goes into a coma and can't, f- and can't serve anymore. The guy after him, number 12, Ehud Olmert, 2006 to 2009. He used to be the mayor of Jerusalem back in 1993. He was the first to publicly advocate for the giving up of Gaza. He gave many concessions to the Arabs. He matches Eli, who was the judge when the Ark of the Covenant was taken by the Philistines and the glory departed from Israel. And the current prime minister is a guy by the name of Naftali Bennett. He's lucky number 13. He assumed office on June 13th, 2021. He was a former Israeli special forces soldier, later became a software entrepreneur, and he's a multimillionaire. Imagine that, the guy who runs the politics of a country being a multimillionaire. He was the chief of staff under Netanyahu. And he came to win this recent election with an alliance government in order to get majority votes. You see, there's a lot of different political parties in Israel. And I think that that could be significant because he is number 13. And there were only 13 judges. Then came Saul, a type of the Antichrist, then came David, a type of Jesus Christ. Eleven days before Bennett assumed office, June 2nd, 2021, he agreed to a rotation government with a guy by the name of Yair Lapid. Lapid is slated to take office in 2023. He's currently called the alternate prime minister. Before politics, he was a TV personality and a news anchor. And he's a centrist. He wants to restart negotiations with Palestine in hopes of getting peace. He has huge popularity among centrist Jews, which most Jews are. And he was voted the number one most influential Jew in the world by the Jerusalem Post back in 2019. 13 well what does all that mean well I'm not sure that I know but I know this how close are we well as we saw and the reason I gave you the dates of the prime ministers prime ministers tend to flip-flop a bit in Israel and they can lose an election and come back again there's 13 distinct people that served as prime ministers modern day judges although some of them served a couple of terms. So what does that mean? Well, I'm not sure what it means for 2023, but I know this. If the Bible's consistent, and it is, and if the modern history of Israel is going to mirror the ancient history of Israel, and I believe that it will, there's only 13. And so it could still be a little while. How close are we? It could still be a little while because of the politics of Israel. Who knows exactly how that'll play out? but not too long, but not too long because after number 13 is the Antichrist and after the Antichrist is Jesus Christ and it's all done. So seriously, y'all, I don't know what that means to you and I don't know what you're hearing while I'm putting this out here today, but can I just encourage you? You don't have a lot of time. You better get your spiritual affairs in order now. And if you're not sure that you have eternal life in Jesus Christ, how can I implore you, please today confess your sins, receive him as your Lord and Savior. And if you're a Christian and you've been walking carnally in this life and wondering, get it right today and dedicate the rest of your time to serve him. Because we don't know exactly, but man, the signs are being shown, aren't they? We're near the very end. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the revelation of the Scripture. Thank you for the history of the nation of Israel. Thank you for giving us insight and wisdom to be able to understand that when the end is coming near, we should be able to be aware of it. Lord, I want to pray for anybody who's here who is unsure if they have eternal life, if, if God forbid their life were to end today. Did they know 100% that they'd have a home in heaven? Lord, if not, I pray that today, even right now, they would just cry out to you, Lord Jesus, forgive me. I know I'm a sinner. I know I've blown it. and I've been playing this game far too long. Please, Lord, forgive me of my sins. Come into my heart and my life. Give me the gift of eternal life. I, I surrender it all to you today. And Lord, for the Christian brothers and sisters who maybe have been playing around with this world and their sin too much, may today be the day that they recognize enough is enough. I need to turn from those things. I need to forsake those things and ask you to forgive us. Lord Jesus, we love you and we want to be honoring to you. Change our hearts, I pray in your name, amen.